wise old rabbi once said, God made man because he loves stories. And as long as we have been around on this planet, we have loved storytelling. You and I know that at Christmas or Thanksgiving, our grandmas and our grandpas, or as we call them, Mima and Papa, our moms and dads, our crazy uncles, our sarcastic aunts, our comical cousins are all going to get together and they're going to start sharing and retelling all of our family stories. Stories that pass along wisdom and family history, and they give us a sense of identity. In places in the world where they hadn't even invented alphabets, they would paint pictures on the rock and illustrate their stories. And they would sit around a fire and a meal just like us at Thanksgiving and do the very same thing. I found that the shortest distance between my heart and the truth is a story. Now, when you met your spouse, what did you spend time doing? Swapping stories, telling each other about your lives, sharing. When you think about your best friends, when you think about them, I immediately come to mind at least three stories. Some of them are ridiculous and funny because of embarrassing things that they did, or maybe they're profoundly tragic because short stories shape and mold our lives. And when people would ask Jesus to explain profound ideas about God, Jesus would tell a story. Well, it's like a dad who had two sons. Or it's like a farmer, and he was planting some seeds. And immediately people could grasp something about God that they hadn't understood before. God didn't pass along to us a book filled with numbers and equations so that we could mathematically calculate and tabulate the intellect of God. No, he gave us the Bible. And it's a book full of stories of people's lives because he wants us to understand his heart. Because God is the greatest storyteller of all time. And hidden away in the pages of what we call the Old Testament is a romantic treasure called the book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is a timeless story. It's the original Cinderella story. It's a portrait of God's redeeming love for us. And here we see God paying the price of passion for us. Love so generous that it gladly pays the price to redeem what has been lost. Love so intimately close that it will never leave us. So let's look at the book of Ruth. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, or if you've got your iPhone, or you can look at the screen, it's everywhere around you. Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Eli Melech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Eli Melech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. 
Now, if you're not familiar with the story, you might be surprised to learn that the beautiful woman in the center of this story is not Jewish. She didn't grow up a church girl, not by a long shot. But she's so remarkable that she becomes one of four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, if the story of Ruth were a Star Wars movie, the rolling marquee would begin something like, It is a dark time for the Jewish nation. Dark forces have infiltrated and corrupted the highest levels of leadership. Anarchy and lawlessness run unchecked by all, but a handful of righteous judges bent on restoring order from chaos. Pretty cool. Thank you. The, The backdrop of this romance is very dark. The period of the judges is roughly 1200 to roughly 1020 BC before Jesus Christ is born. And this is one of the most rebellious, most stubborn, unfortunate periods in all of Israel's history. They were surrounded, as we are, by many non-believers. And rather than living out their lives as a witness, they sadly, repeatedly succumbed to temptations. This is the spiritual dark ages for God's people. And it's not said explicitly here, but it leads us to wonder if the famine was not in fact God's judgment upon his people. Because famine, almost every time that it is mentioned in scripture, is working in conjunction with God's judgment against his people. Because if they refuse to obey him, he will refuse to prosper them. And the first person that we'll focus on in the story is Eli Melech. Eli Melech is a husband and a father. He has a good Jewish name. It means God is king. And he and his family live in Bethlehem, which means what? The house of bread. So how ironic is it that in the house of bread, people are starving to death, right? I mean, imagine every tree and every orchard in Yuba City dries up. Imagine every grocery store in town locking their doors and boarding up their windows Because there's no food. The trucks aren't delivering. The shelves are bare. And this husband is left with a decision to make. And that is, do I remain with my family here in Bethlehem where there's famine and people are going hungry? Or do I journey and relocate? Do I I stay and try to help people and be a part of the solution of what's going on? Or do I get out of here and, and move to Moab? Now, Moab is just 50 miles away. And yet they have plenty of food. Another hint that the crisis that's happening to God's people is a judgment intended to produce repentance. But what this husband and father determines to do is not to stay and help and deal with the underlying spiritual causes of sin and rebellion. He instead only looks at the economics and the job opportunity and the upward mobility that is afforded him, and he relocates his family to Moab. He's not considering the spiritual environment of Moab or what sort of influences he will be exposing his family to. Think of how many people are moving away from California every year. Elimelech faced a decision not unlike ours, just much more dire. But he makes his decision out of fear, not out of faith. In choosing to go to Moab, he chose to leave his church to leave the worship of God, to leave godly friendships and leave accountability. And he figures, well, I can, just, I can worship God anywhere. 
He left no one for his wife to have for a friend that loves God. He left no one for his children to fall in love with and marry that loved God. And like so many men do, he only counted the financial costs. And he didn't count the spiritual costs. And as a result, he relocates his entire family to Moab. And he does this to spare his family from death. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 3 begins, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, what? Died. Just three verses into the story, and it's game over. Why did Elimelech move to Moab? So he wouldn't die. What does Elimelech do in Moab? He dies. So much for that bug-out plan. Elimelech is here to teach us about values and priorities and decision-making. When we make life decisions solely based on the things that we're afraid of, God will let us deal with the inevitable shortcomings of our own strength. But when we make decisions based on faith, God promises to look out for us and bless us, and if need be, come down and do a miracle. Jesus said, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What are we going to wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And when the pressure is on to provide for your family, our trust in God gets tested. Isn't that true? I'll never forget a story my mom told me about a difficult time. She and her sister were just little girls, and the family was at the end financially, literally There was no food in the house. And my grandma got her two girls together, and they watched as grandma wrote down a grocery list, all the things that they needed. And then my grandma had her two girls join her as she prayed over that list. And before the day was over, a knock was heard at the door, and a man from their church was standing there. And he said, I was just out grocery shopping, and the Lord impressed on me to pick up a few things for you and your family. And he brings in loads of groceries into the house. And the two little girls are tearing into everything. And grandma says, no, wait, go get the list. And they checked off that li- on that list every item that they had prayed for earlier in the day, plus additional goodies that hadn't even been mentioned. When faced with critical choice that would affect his family, Elimelech chose to react in fear rather than in faith. Let's take a look at his wife, Naomi. Her name means pleasant, agreeable, sweetheart. Naomi is a keeper, but she's married to this man who has moved her and and their boys to a foreign country, and then he up and dies. And Naomi was left with her two sons. Well, that's good. Sons could look after her. They could care for her, feed her, nurture her in her old age. She would be okay because she's got two sons. And it says, these took Moabite wives. Now, here the story gets sad. Because of the scandalous and the treacherous actions of the Moabite people, they had been forbidden from entering the temple of God. Now, I want you to imagine marrying someone that has a restraining order on them and they can't go to church with you. Think of the complications of that, the stress on your marriage and your kids. They married two Moabite women. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. So fast forward 10 years, add a couple of gray hairs and a wrinkle. They've been married for some time, and they have no children. 
This family is on the verge of ceasing to exist. And both Malon and Kilion, what? They died too. Why did Elimelech move to Moab? So that he and his sons would not die. What happened? They died. In Moab, in the middle of a Great Depression, the worst possible thing happens. Naomi is hit with funeral after funeral after funeral. She loses the love of her life and the two boys that she brought into the world. Her family has come to an end. And there she was, left in Moab. Broken isn't the right word. She's crushed. She has no church, no women's Bible study to encourage her. With no husband and no sons, Naomi is penniless. She owns nothing. Have you ever felt like Naomi? Just when you think that life could not possibly get more unfair, you get sucker punched by even more bad news. And your problems just seem to compound until you're numb from pain and there are no more tears left in your body. Look at Naomi. She has nothing. Some of you have been through this. You know exactly where Naomi is. And what do we do when our world gets shattered? Well, we do what Naomi would do. She decides to go home. She returns to Bethlehem. The famine is over. Emotionally speaking, a giant tornado has blown through her life and carried her away to the, fa- to the land of Oz where everybody's crazy. And she understands, like Dorothy, deep in her heart, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. And she decides to return home. You know the feeling. You've been away on a business trip and you're travel weary. The food was bad. The beds were hard. The planes were late. You come home and you're in your own bed. Oh, that's a good feeling, isn't it? Or you have an especially long, hard day and you come home. The house is clean. There's a hot meal waiting for you. It's good to be home. Look around you. We call this place a sanctuary for a reason. Spiritually speaking, this is home. This is a place where you can find family, where you're loved. This is a place to get fed and to recoup your strength for another day. Listen, this is not about Naomi returning to her four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath in Bethlehem. No, she lost all that. This was not a sure thing for Naomi. All she knew was that whatever the rest of her life looked like, she wanted to spend it in the place where she belonged, among God's people. Sometimes you got to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You got to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You need to go where everybody knows your name. (laughs) Yeah, I just did that. Okay. The Bible says that when Naomi showed up, the whole town was buzzing. And here's something that I really like about Naomi her brutal honesty, because her old friends are like, hey, Naomi, how's it going, girl? And most Christians would have been like, I'm blessed. Or, you know, as Pastor JR says, praise him. (laughs) No, Naomi was like, don't call me sweetheart. Call me bitter old hag, because that's exactly how I feel. (laughs) I love that about Naomi. She says exactly how she feels. You know, People who have suffered and and seen life, they don't play word games anymore. They just tell it like it is. And I love that. Maybe you're like, God, I love you, but I really don't like you right now. And Naomi teaches us that God 
can handle your emotions. When we get real with God and we get real with the people around us, then they can begin to encourage us and help us move forward. Orpah is one of Naomi's daughters-in-law, and I want you to picture these women, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. They've been a family, bonded together for 10 years, and they've just gone through a devastating tragedy. And Naomi has decided to return home. They're still in Moab, but they're on a major highway heading towards Israel. And Naomi stops and she turns to her daughters-in-law and she says, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Three women begin this journey. Two women complete it. How will you finish? Orpah wept. Orpah verbalized her intentions to go to Israel. Orpah was emotionally invested, but in the end, when it came down to decision time, Orpah valued other things. A chance at future happiness, a connection with her culture, financial security. Orpah is going to do what is rational and ordinary. And Orpah's story ends here. Orpah's here to teach us that we will not be remembered for how we felt. We only get remembered for what we did. Now, in the story of God's redeeming love, we come to the real beauty, God's Cinderella, Ruth. And Ruth, like Orpah, is a dirty, rotten Moabitess. Now, the backstory of the Moabites is that they are the product of incest from Lot having sex with his own daughter, back in the book of Genesis. And the result of this tragedy is a son named Moab. And from him come the people group, the Moabites, who are considered incestuous, sexually perverted group of people who worship a bloodthirsty pagan god. How would you like to have that come up on your genealogy on Ancestry.com? It's out of this incestuous, scandalous genetic stew that Ruth is born. She grew up in spiritual darkness, where going to church meant human sacrifice and prostitution. But just because that is her past doesn't mean that that is her future. Ruth loved Naomi, and she was going to choose her relationship with Naomi over everything else and move to another country. And we're going to see God honor and bless her as a result of her loving heart and her choices. Spoiler alert, Ruth gets the Bachelor of Bethlehem and she lives happily ever after. Okay, you see, the Bible makes it clear that God does not show favoritism. 
God doesn't judge Ruth because of what she came from, but what she chose to go to. Jesus identifies with us in our questionable past. Aren't you thankful for that? Just as Ruth endured the glances and the snubbing and the muttering, you dirty, rotten Moabitess, under people's breath, Jesus also knew the pain of rejection. God always has a plan, even for the pain that comes into our lives. And his word says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sometimes we get stuck in the past. Maybe someone told you you're not good enough. You're not deserving. You shouldn't even try. And it's harder when it's you telling yourself, I'm a loser. I'm never going to amount to anything. I should just go back to Moab with Orpah. Those voices are not the voices of the Lord. God is saying, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God says your past does not determine your future. It's not that God is playing make-believe and pretending that everything never happened. God doesn't have a problem facing reality. God is reality. God has the ability to see your future as clearly as you see the present. And that is why God says your future is a good one. God isn't bound to time the way we are. He sees all times as now. And that's why Jesus was able to say, before Abraham was, I am. Right now, you might be in a struggle, but God sees you winning. You might be wondering, how am I going to keep the landlord at bay? How am I going to keep the lights on? But God sees you succeeding and prospering already. Your past does not determine your future. Ruth was looked down on because she came from an inbred, godless community of pagans. And to them, Ruth was not one of the chosen ones. But God saw a woman who understood loyalty, who had learned lessons of deep suffering, and who had cast her future into God's hands in the name of selfless love for Naomi. God saw in Ruth a woman worthy of a second chance at love. And more than that, Ruth snags the bachelor of Bethlehem. She got the one that all the women wanted. And on on top of that, Ruth's great-grandson, David, becomes king of Israel. And on top of that, Ruth is one of only four women mentioned in the Bible in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Wow. Ruth the Moabitess shows us that there is room in God's family for the outsiders. If you have ever been rejected, if you have ever been despised, God has a plan for you. And there is a place for you here in God's family. Your past does not determine your future. Another lesson that we learn from Ruth is that those that we love shape our future. Listen to what Ruth tells Naomi. Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth developed emotional bonds to her godly family beyond just her marriage. Deep personal pain did not sever those bonds, but strengthened them. 
You know, there's different kinds of intelligence in the world. There's book smarts and there's street smarts. There's an intelligence of the mind and then there's an intelligence of the heart. And Ruth has heart smarts. Ruth had tapped into a fundamental spiritual law that forever changed the course of her life. And that is the law of relationships. God values relationships because God is a relationship. And the point of God making humanity was for relationship. I'll restate this. God made you just to love you. The first question that the Bible records ever being asked of God is, am I my brother's keeper? And the rest of the Bible is God's answer to that question. Jesus taught that love was the greatest commandment, an all-encompassing, generous, selfless outpouring of love for God is the greatest command because one, that's the way God loves us. And two, because this command engages us in a love relationship with God that will transform us and affect everyone around us. Jesus said the next greatest command was to love others. Love the people around you generously. Give of yourself. Think of ways to serve each other. Do this and watch the atmosphere of your home change. Your spouse is going to fall in love with you all over again. Ruth chose a life of poverty with Naomi over an easy life back in Moab. Another sad reality before we get to the happily ever after part in the story of Ruth is that the people of God in Bethlehem didn't all rush in to support these two ladies. No, basically Ruth gave up her family and her country and her culture and a chance to restart her life to go dumpster diving with Naomi. These two women are completely impoverished. In her own way, Ruth gives us an idea of what Jesus did for us. I want you to think for a minute here about the things that Jesus gave up to be with you. He who was limitless chose to become limited. He was eternal and immortal, chose to become a mortal man. He was pure and sinless, but he willingly chose to take ownership of all your sins. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Jesus. So God honors Ruth and blesses her. Why? Because she demonstrates his character in her life. She leaves everything, sacrifices everything to be with someone that she loves. And while Ruth is out gleaning the cast-offs of the harvest, she winds up in the field of Boaz. Now, Boaz is a landowner, and business is very, very good. I think it's important to stop here and remember, Boaz stayed in Bethlehem while guys like Elimelech moved away. 
Boaz stayed. He decided to trust in God, to stick it out through the hard times, and resolve to be a part of the solution. And God prospered him. Also, he happens to be a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband that died in Moab. Boaz also happens to love God, and Boaz happens to need a wife. And here comes the hottie from Moab. Cue the romantic music. Boaz notices her. He speaks to her. He blesses her. He prays for her. He takes her out on a little date. He gives her a nice bit to eat. It looks like love is in the air. He offers her a job for the remainder of harvest, which is about six or seven more weeks. And then for six or seven weeks, Boaz does nothing. Like so many men, he has no idea what to do with a woman. He, he doesn't get it. There's no cards, no email, no flowers, no text, no phone call, no coffee, nothing. Time is running out. Come on, Boaz. At the end of the harvest, they're going to go their separate ways. It's a temp job. Oh, no. When uh, Kirsten and I were courting, she lived in a whole other part of the United States. So we only got to you know, see each other when we could arrange to do it. And after our relationship was growing, it became harder and harder to say goodbye. And I knew that I loved her. And I knew that I wanted to marry her. And so we started talking about her maybe moving out to California. And her dad, Jeff, said, nothing doing. My daughter is not going to move anywhere unless she's engaged to be married. And I love Jeff for doing that, especially now that I'm a dad of a daughter. He was looking out for his little girl. And here's how it's going to go with Mila. Mila's going to come over to the house. And that boy is going to meet Kirsten. And the boy is going to meet me. And he's going to meet all my guns. (laughs) You see, but Ruth didn't have a daddy looking out for her. All Ruth has now is Naomi. And I'll just say here that Naomi's advice is not what I would recommend. Going in the middle of the night to lay down next to the guy after a big party? No, not in a million years. In fact, I will expressly forbid Mila from even thinking that. It's one of those moments in the Bible that I would call a description rather than a prescription. But the short of it here is that Boaz is dragging his feet and time is running out. So Naomi says, Ruth, this man has only ever seen you funkified out in the fields. Shower and shave, get your hair did, nails did, and don't bother him with relationship talk until after he has eaten and enjoyed the party. Then lay down at his feet. Boaz will do the right thing. It was a gamble, but Boaz was a godly man. A beautiful woman, the woman that he loves, shows up in the middle of the night, and he doesn't bust a move. Ruth basically says, Bo, I'm not asking you to marry me, but would you ask me to marry you? (laughs) And single guys, here is the lesson that we learn from Boaz. When you lead a godly life, God brings the hotties to you. (laughs) Have you seen my wife, Kirsten? (laughs) Am I right? And Boaz is so humble he acknowledges that there are younger, better-looking guys than him, guys with the six-pack abs, you know. Boaz is humble, and he sends Ruth home before dawn because he doesn't want her reputation to be smeared. He protects her that way. And what's more, he sends her home with a present for Naomi. Any guy that wants to get near Mila will be bringing presents to Kirsten and me. 
And like every great romance, there's an obstacle that has to be overcome before our star-crossed lovers can get together. Boaz knows that there is a kinsman redeemer more closely related to Elimelech's family and has more legal right to Ruth and to the family property. You see, the law of the day stated that if a man died before producing children, then a kinsman would step in, produce children with the widow, so that the property could stay in the family and the family name not disappear. So it's clear that this is about love for Boaz. He doesn't owe Ruth or Naomi anything. There's another guy who is closer in kinship, who has more legal responsibility, and he's got to clear it with this guy and get him out of the picture so that he can be with the woman that he loves. The story of Ruth and Boaz is a portrait of loving kindness. In the Hebrew, that word is chesed, These aren't acts of kindness with some sort of expectation. They are acts of love that go beyond and demonstrate that a person motivated by love can go past the minimum expectations of the law and choose the unexpected. In spite of Ruth's past, she is accepted by Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and he marries her and fulfills the legal requirements and he redeems the land and he secures a future for Ruth and Naomi like Jesus, who fulfilled all righteousness and calls us his bride, accepting us as his beloved in spite of our past. And ultimately, Jesus will secure our eternal future as well as the physical land of Israel. Boaz's love for Ruth and his decision to marry her is the hinge point in the story. Boaz accepts Ruth. He loves her. You know, today we often talk about faith in terms of our family and friends, and they need to accept Jesus, and they do. It's true. But I think the bigger story here is that Christ has accepted us. At the cross, Jesus makes it abundantly clear to you that he loves you. He accepts you. He takes ownership of you. All your sins, all your shame, all your guilt, all of it. He willingly embraces because God loves you desperately and his love will change the entire course of your life if you let it. Boaz changed Ruth's life. And like Ruth, each one of us comes with some history and some baggage. We have a past. And our part of the deal is just to lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, here I am, Lord. I want to be yours. Why don't we stand this morning and just thank him for his great love for us. Everybody stand your feet. Just open up your mouth.